0: The book of Jonah. Um, <clears throat> let's get this in before the wind picks back up. Um, <clears throat> the book of Jonah is a familiar book to many of us. Uh, and even if you haven't read the book of Jonah very much, you're, you're likely to know some of the parts of the story. Uh, the story of, uh, of Jonah being thrown overboard and the, the big fish or, or the whale, depending on your telling of the story that swallows him up and miraculously keeps him alive uh, for three days before uh, the, the fish Uh, vomits him up. That's a word uh, for you to use today. Um, The fish vomits him up on dry ground. Uh, The book of Jonah uh, is a book that's uh, really a story of a second chance because God um, gives Jonah a second chance after he runs from him uh, to go and be faithful to his call to go to Nineveh. Um, It's uh, it's a story that's found in most most kids' books as well as uh, in most of our minds. And as familiar as we are with the book of Jonah, I, I thought it was Uh, ironic, some of you here last week, we were in the book of Obadiah, a book that's about as unfamiliar uh, to many of us as Jonah is familiar uh, to us. Uh, And in the book of Jonah, while it's familiar in its content, it presents us with a pressing question. And this is the pressing question. Do you share God's concern for those who are far from him? The pressing question to the people of Israel in the day of Jonah To Jonah himself is the same question that God gives us today is, are we concerned as God is for those who are far from him? Let's uh, let's let's give a little backstory. We won't spend all our time on this, but we're going to lead up to chapter four, because I think that's where the book of Jonah takes us. It takes us to the uh, the fourth chapter as the heart of what God has to say to his people. And so Jonah chapter uh, chapter one begins with God's call. To Jonah to go to Nineveh. If you look in your Bible uh, in Jonah chapter one, it begins <clears throat> with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. That same statement will be used again because that wouldn't be the last time God would have to call Jonah to go and do that. Uh, but it's his first call. Uh, we know that uh, Jonah was a prophet uh, in the nation of Israel. This is before, you remember those two dates uh, that, that we gave that are important? 722 is the Assyrian exile. That's when the, the northern kingdom of Israel goes into exile to Assyria. Assyria's capital is the city of Nineveh. Uh, this is before that takes place. And then 586 BC uh, is when the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken into captivity to Babylon. This is before either of those happened. Uh, and it's at a time when Israel is kind of on the upswing. They had a king, a king named Jeroboam. But here's the thing about Jeroboam. <clears throat> Jeroboam wasn't a godly king. Uh, he was a sinful king who walked in, uh, in evil ways and didn't follow God's word. But God was gracious to Israel, even as they were stubborn and stiff-necked and uh, going their own way. Now, that's a word for all of us, uh, that God was, was gracious to them and actually expanded the borders of Israel gaining back land that they had lost during some of their other king's reigns, restoring them to the glory of King David. At the height of Israel's uh, reign under King David it was the largest that Israel was. And so God had used Jonah to prophesy to King Jeroboam that, that God was going to restore Israel to its, uh, its fuller uh, borders to, to the time of King David. You can read about that in First Kings chapter 14, verse uh, 25. But here's the thing about what Jonah does in the face of God's call to go to Nineveh. He runs. He runs from God. <clears throat> and Jonah learns a, a lesson the hard way when he runs from God. He, he finds out that it often costs more to run from God than it does to trust God in the first place. <clears throat> so God... It says in verse 4, sends a storm. He hurls a storm at Jonah. Jonah gets on a ship and goes as far away uh, from from, uh, God's call to go to Nineveh as he can to to a place called Tarshish. And he runs from God and it says he literally goes down, uh, descending down. Uh, away from God, running from him, not thinking. Uh, That's the thing about sin is it makes you stupid. You don't think logically because he's running from a God who's everywhere, a God who sees all things and knows all things, and yet he thinks he can run away from him. Um, And yet God sees him and hurls a storm into his life. As I read Jonah this week, I just couldn't help but think about how much we sometimes underestimate what God will do to to trace down and track down those who run from him. On one hand, it can perhaps be scary what God might send into your life when you run from him. But what mercy, that's really the story of Jonah is the hope of God's mercy is that God will go to great lengths to bring us back to himself or awaken us to our our need for him and his calling on our life. So here in the midst of this storm, uh, everything's going awry, uh, and Jonah is asleep in the, in the bottom of the ship, and all the sailors who are up top are panicking as this storm is about to overtake them. They're crying out and praying to their gods, uh, and they go get Jonah, and they tell us, and they, they tell him, they say, who are you? Where do you come from? Who are your people? Tell us what, what's happening and and jonah you know i guess just this dude's stone cold right he's asleep in the middle of a storm number one um uh, you know i i i actually can relate to him uh, my wife can testify i can sleep through a lot of storms uh even uh, the storms of newborn children crying uh even in our bedroom uh it's not a selective gift i promise uh it uh, just happens and um uh, <clears throat> i gladly volunteer to be woken up uh, and uh to to, to tap in Uh, for my duty in those moments, but um, I, I could sleep through a lot. And apparently Jonah is a lot like me. But once he gets up, he not only has slept through the storm, but he looks at these sailors who have been doing everything that they can. Is this any better? There we go. Let's meet outside, they said. It would be fun. Um, that's actually what I said, but uh, <clears throat> never mind that. Um, so Jonah looks at these guys who have been really doing every they can, everything they can to save themselves, but also to save him, his uh, sorry self, who's asleep in the middle of the storm, right? Uh, and, and there he is, and he looks at them, and he says, With great confidence, I'm a Hebrew. I represent the God who made the heavens and the earth. And they're like, well, could you give us a hand? Because the storm is about to take us over. The God who made the heavens and the earth, could you call out to him and ask him to help us? Uh, if you look at what they say there in, in Jonah chapter 4, <clears throat> or Jonah chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, verse, uh, verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew And here's the part that I can't get over as I read this. And I fear the Lord. Um, What Pastor Chris told our graduates to do, uh, this isn't the fear of the Lord that you should exhibit as you walk from this place. Uh, He feared the Lord so much, uh, he runs uh, from his will. He says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and the men then were exceedingly afraid. And he says, what is this that you have done? And apparently Jonah had told them. He got on board and he said, I'm not only going to Tarshish, but I'm going there because I'm running from God. And as things get worse, they say, what shall we do so that we can quiet the sea? And Jonah offers himself up to be thrown overboard. Perhaps the most sacrificial thing he's done thus far. Uh, But part of me wonders uh, uh, as we look at it, no doubt Jonah sacrifices himself for uh, for the sailors. But I think in part, Jonah's showing us. If God will go to great lengths to get our attention and to return us to his will, uh, sometimes we're knuckleheads enough to, to go to great lengths to run from God and to, uh, to turn away from him. And that's exactly what Jonah continues to do, his course of running from God. He's thrown over sea, uh, thrown over the ship and to the sea. And, and in the midst of this, as Jonah's still running from God, God in his mercy shows up again. You see, it was God's mercy that brought the storm to grab Jonah's attention. Jonah throws himself overboard, and it's God's mercy that provides a great fish. It says in Jonah chapter 2, or at the, at the end of Jonah chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I have to say before we go on, some people who read the Bible, they say to themselves, I, you know, I can believe a lot about the Bible, but the fish thing, Jonah, you know, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure what to think about that. What, what kind of animal was this? Was this a whale? What kind of great fish was this? Did God appoint this great fish just for this moment? I, I think I, I look at it this way. It is no doubt uh, an, an amazing story. Um, and, and, and we see a God who controls the the heavens and the seas doing these things. But I actually believe something more radical that helps me believe the less radical thing about Jonah swallowing, um, being swallowed by a great fish. And that's that God took on flesh and Jesus and came and died on the cross. And then they put him in a tomb. Uh, and on three, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he's alive forever. And if we can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and lives forever, uh, it helps us to put into perspective that God can rescue Jonah from the sea by this great fish. And that's exactly uh, what Jonah does. And Jonah comes to his senses, so to speak. Uh, as he's in this fish and he cries out to God, recognizing his condition, recognizing his need uh, to to fall down and uh, and to humble himself before God. And we see down in Jonah chapter two, it says, "When my life chapter seven chapter two verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I wish the voice, uh, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice." To you what I have owed what I vowed I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord spoke to the fish and here's our word for the day and it vomited Jonah up on dry land you see even while Jonah' is there in the belly of the fish God not only in his mercy provides this fish to rescue him but it's as if God opens Jonah's eyes to see his mercy a little bit more clearly I can't help but notice as as Jonah Uh, declares that salvation belongs to the Lord, there's still a part of Jonah's heart um, that doesn't see himself rightly and that hinders him from seeing God's compassion and heart for others. Do you notice there in verse 8, it's a true statement as so far as it goes. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If we persist in our rejection of God and worshiping uh, things and And God's other than the one true God. No doubt we forsake the hope of steadfast love. But it's as if Jonah uh, still holds on, not recognizing that his people themselves are about to be sent into exile because they worship vain idols. uh, that They themselves are guilty of this. It's as if he's riding off the sailors and riding off Nineveh as undeserving of God's mercy while all the while receiving and experiencing God's mercy for himself. But just like God works in the life of Jonah, sometimes in a process, I'm going to say to us today that God often works in our life in a process, helping us to understand more fully the mercy that we've received from God in the first place. And I think that's exactly what he does with Jonah. So once Jonah's back on dry land in chapter 3, we see that Jonah, uh, this time, is willing to respond to God in obedience. You notice there in chapter 3, verse 1. Somewhere blowing in the wind, um, it says that I'm in the Book of Joel, um, and in Jonah chapter three, it says something to the effect that God basically says, "Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh and preach against that great city." And this time, Jonah goes, <clears throat> and he gets there, and he he does. Uh, He experiences what any preacher would love to experience. He preaches, uh, in Hebrew, a five-word sermon, um, which is actually what every church wishes their pastor would do, but uh, that's beside the point. It's actually eight in English, um, but uh, in the original language, five words, uh, as you notice there, uh, and as Bryce read, it says, it's a pretty uplifting sermon, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and then... God does the unimaginable. The city that Jonah thought would never respond to his word and to his message respond. They believed God. They perhaps had heard the story of what God had done in rescuing Jonah. And perhaps they had had a realization, the reality uh, that <clears throat> the message that that Jonah brought wasn't just another messenger coming to bring a sensational story, but was something credible about it, that, that God was sending a warning, that his judgment was coming and they thought to themselves, we better turn and seek God and ask him to forgive us. It doesn't tell us that they became covenant worshiping people of God. It doesn't ever use the name of Yahweh. Unlike the sailors, they never make vows or, or sacrifices to God, but, but apparently they took one step closer to God that day and their hearts turned away from violence. If you read on, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and ashes and issued a proclamation and a fast goes out and uh, all the, the kings and his nobles let neither man or beast heard nor flow. Taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Here it is let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God hears their cries and sees their response, he turns from his anger. And this isn't God changing his mind. God isn't a capricious God. But this is exactly who God says he is. That God is holy and righteous. He doesn't overlook sin. That God is gracious and merciful. He'll forgive any sinner who will call out to him. The issue is that when we hear God's message of judgment and we know God's character of being holy and yet merciful, if we will cry out in repentance, God will hear us. No matter if we find ourselves in the, most violent and um, God-forsaken place like Nineveh, or we find ourselves comfortably sitting in Israel waiting to hear a message from the Lord. When we call out to him and repent, God hears us. He heard Jonah in chapter 2, and he hears the Ninevites in chapter 3. But in response to all of this, it brings us to the heart of Jonah, and that brings us to the pressing question of this sermon. Look with me to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly what God had done. Jonah was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said yet when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. For I knew, listen to this. He quotes the Bible to God, Exodus 34, 6. I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, the final chapter of Jonah 3 brings us to what I think is the focus of the book. The the pressing question of the book is, do we share God's concern, God's heart for those who are far from him? Jonah chapters 1 through 2 show us God's mercy for those who run from God. That's a a whole other sermon that we could unpack on another day. Jonah chapter 3 shows us God's mercy for those who are far from God. But the point of chapter uh, of the book of Jonah that comes to to the focus in Jonah chapter 4 is that God shows mercy for the self-righteous, for those who think they're close to God, but who actually are far from the heart of God. You see, many have pointed to the parallel between the book of Jonah and actually the, the parable of the two sons in Luke chapter 15, also known as the prodigal son. Jonah plays actually both parts, if you could think of it this way. He's the younger son who runs from God in chapters 1 through 2. Um <clears throat> And, uh, and in return, receives mercy <clears throat> as he comes back to God, as we see in chapter 2. But in the latter half of the book, in chapters 3 through 4, he's the older brother who, doesn't <clears throat> who, who does what God wants in obedience, but yet resents who the father shows grace and mercy to. Just as the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons really isn't about the two sons, but it's about the father who has grace on the younger son and who pleads with the older self-righteous son to rejoice in the salvation of those who are far from him and to receive that mercy himself. The book of Jonah isn't so much uh, first and foremost about Jonah, but it's about God who has mercy both on those who are self-righteous, who think they're close to God but are far from the heart of God, as well as those who are far from God and who run from God. See, I think Jonah is like many of us. He knows many things about God. He's tasted and seen God's mercy in his life. And yet it hasn't sunk down from his head to his heart. It hasn't affected the way he views himself or even the way that he views others. And we see that on full display in, in chapter four. You see, in chapter four, we, we get the reason why Jonah ran in the first place. The first reason we see is because of fear and prejudice. In part, Jonah perhaps didn't wanna go to Nineveh because Nineveh wasn't exactly a welcoming place. It wasn't on your trip advisor top 10 place to go visit. Uh, It was known as a violent place. It was in fact, many uh, historians would call it a terrorist state. Uh, They were brutal. Uh, They often would cut off the legs, it was said, uh, of their captives and leave one arm so that they could shake the other arm in mockery of those that they defeated they were known for decapitating their victims and, uh, and gloating in their victory as they walked throughout the street. <clears throat> That's fearful enough. I wouldn't particularly want to go uh, to, to Nineveh myself, but I don't think Jonah's fear was mostly about his physical security. We see, I, in many ways, I think Jonah's more fearful for Israel's national security, if you could think of it that way. I told you about First Kings 14 that tell us Jonah was central to, uh, to to declaring to King Jeroboam that God was going to <clears throat> uh, going to restore the kingdom of Israel their borders to uh, to the larger size that they were during the reign uh, of Judah or of King David. <clears throat> Jonah was at the center of that. He would he would have been known in Israel as a um, <clears throat> as as someone who was somewhat of a patriot, so to speak. Uh, He was a proud Hebrew. We know he uh, was a proud Hebrew because that was the first way he identified himself. And to be sure, to be a proud Hebrew was not just a national statement, but it was a theological statement because God had chosen Israel to be his special people. Uh, But last week, we saw uh, that, that Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And through Israel, God will bring blessing to all nations. We saw God keep his promise to curse those who cursed Israel and the Edomites and in the book of Obadiah. Well, Jonah's learning here exactly what God means in Jonah chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that God intends to bless all nations through Israel. And Jonah didn't reflect God's heart and his promise that he made to Abraham because here for Jonah, he sees in his mind the people of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, was a threat to Israel. For God to not judge Nineveh was a a moral, uh, if if you could think of it this way, it was uh, morally uh, dumbfounded Jonah. How could God overlook Nineveh's sin and violence, Nineveh's uh, pride and, and the way in which they killed people ruthlessly and even came against the people of God? And at the same time, I think Jonah looked at Nineveh and thought, how in the world could God show mercy to them? God, God has mercy on us, but how could he show mercy to them? Now, to be, fear, to be fair, <clears throat> Jonah's fear was, was in many ways properly founded. Nineveh, the people of Assyria, were a powerful nation that would eventually conquer Israel. But rather than taking his fear to God, he sought to protect his own interests. Hold God's mercy and his grace from those that he feared. He held so tightly to his fear and his prejudice that he judged God in light of it. That's what's so amazing about chapter 4, verse 3. He throws in God's face his character. He says, I knew you were like this, God. Rather than allowing God's character to dictate his view of people, Jonah allowed his nationalism, as it were, to dictate his view of God. He, he allowed his, his view of, of who the people of Israel were to, uh, to, to be so big in his mind that he had to constrain God's character and God's compassion for those outside of Israel. Look back there at verses 3 through 4. As Jonah reads Exodus 34 through verse 6, God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Read that in light of Genesis 12, 3, in which God says he promises to bring blessing to all nations. Jonah critiques God for being a glorious God. Exodus 34 is God revealing his glory to Moses. And God says, My glory is revealed in that not only am I um, righteous and just and will judge those who sin and rebel against me, but I am gracious and abounding in steadfast love, merciful, slow to anger, relenting from disaster. And God asked Jonah this searching question Do you do well to be angry? You do well to hold your pride and your prejudice in your heart, keeping you from fulfilling God's will to go to those who are far from me. We see not only pride and, or fear, I should say, and prejudice. Pride and prejudice, that's another thing. You can check that out sometime. Fear and prejudice is Jonah's problem. Perhaps some pride mixed in there. But secondarily, we see comfort and security distract Jonah. From fulfilling God's call. You see, Jonah decided to go outside of town. It tells us, starting in verse five, and and wait for God to catch up with him. Now he was waiting, I suppose, to see what God would do to Nineveh. And when Nineveh repents and God relents, Jonah is furious. He's angry. He won't respond to God's question of whether or not he does well to be angry over God being true to his character. But there in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his hard heartedness, God once more shows Jonah mercy because he causes a plant to grow and to come over Jonah. And this plant grows and it gives shade. I thought, I thought about this. We can endure a lot if, uh, if, if we're cool. Uh, my car is missing. It's a passenger side rearview mirror. A while back, I had a car roll into my car and damage the uh, driver's side rear door. I used that money rather than to fix it to pay off the car. I thought that was a good deal. Uh, The dent didn't look that bad and uh, I could pay off the car. Um, I'm willing to drive my car around like that, but I'll tell you this, if my car's AC goes out, I'm throwing down whatever money I need to so that I can stay cool and the two months in which it's hot in the city of Ann Arbor, right? Like we can do a lot until our comfort is uh, is, uh, is messed with. And that's, that's Jonah, right? He's doing pretty well. He's still angry, uh, but God's been merciful to him and given him this plant, which provides some shade. And when God takes that away, the gloves come off. But as I think about that, I just can't help but think, the message of Jonah is the message of God showing mercy not only to Nineveh, not only to those sailors, but it's God's pursuit of Jonah to capture his heart, that he might share God's heart for people who are far from him. And even in this moment at chapter 4, it's, it's mercy enough that there's a, a, verse, a verse 5 in chapter 4 after Jonah's angry outburst at God's character at the beginning. But what mercy it is that God not only provides a blessing of shade, To Jonah, but then reasons with Jonah. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with someone, and when you're angry, usually reasoning and logic isn't at the top of the list in your fight, right? (laughs) But what mercy that God shows, that he doesn't match Jonah's anger with anger. He doesn't smite him for his pride and ridiculous comeback to God, throwing his character in his face, but he shows mercy to him. But then it un- all unravels in, in verse 9. We see that Jonah, <clears throat> that God appoints a worm to kill the plant. The plant dies, and Jonah is so angry, and God once more asks, you do well to be angry at the plant that you didn't do anything for, that I provided to you? And now Jonah's got an answer. Yeah, I do well to be angry, and I'm so upset that life isn't worth living in this world anymore. It's almost comical, and perhaps that's part of the point. God gave the plant as an act of mercy to Jonah, but God sends the worm to further expose Jonah's heart. See, Jonah had allowed his prejudice to keep him from pursuing God's mission, and then he valued his own comfort over showing compassion to those who are far from God. That perhaps is the message of Jonah for us, is are we distracted by the blessings that God gives us, by the comfort that God provides to us, by the comfort which we seek, that we're too distracted from seeing people the way that God wants us to see them and being willing to go towards them in compassion. See, there are two questions that I think the book of Jonah leads us to ask. You see, Jonah chapter four ends with a question. God says, shouldn't I have mercy? Shouldn't I have Pity, compassion, on these 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh who don't know their right from their left, and their cattle. I love God's word. You gotta, you gotta just appreciate that. It's been a head scratcher uh, when you read it. You're like, and their cattle. Um, on one hand, I'm like, that's that's fitting for our city. God sees the people and the cattle, right? Like, save the bees. Um, <clears throat> and, and 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 it's a reminder. As, as, uh, as I kind of poke fun at it because it sounds so out of place as God's sharing his concern for these 120,000 people in Nineveh, it's a reminder that God's the creator of all and he's the redeemer of all. One day he's not only going to redeem us, but he's going to redeem all creation. What, a, what an amazing testimony about God who shows us that, that he's the author and the creator of all things and that we indeed should value Uh, this creation, and take care of it as God has entrusted it to us to steward it. But it ultimately speaks not to our power over creation, but to God's power and his promise one day to renew all things. And to renew all things in creation, but particularly to renew the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, that he made in his image. And it's that 120,000 people made in the image of God now, these people were violent. Do you remember what I, how I described Nineveh earlier? Think about how I described Nineveh as ruth, ruthless, brutal, decapitating people. They sacrificed their children in the fires of their false gods. They they were a brutal people, and God characterizes them as, as little children who don't know their right from their left. It's somewhat funny when your kids... Uh, start learning how to put their shoes on. They often don't know their right from their left. And we were playing in our um, yard the other day, and actually another kid from the neighborhood came over and had her shoes on and didn't have them on the right foot. And she was walking uh, kind of funny because the shoes are uncomfortable. I've seen my kids do it, sometimes even putting on the wrong shoes on the wrong feet. And you know, when I see that, I don't look at my child and say, I cannot believe how ridiculous you are right now that you would put your shoes on the wrong... Don't you know better? You're too, John. You should know better than putting your right f- shoe on your left foot. Get your act together, kid. I would never do that. Because I know my child. I see them. I love them. I laugh a little bit, let them walk around, and I say, come here, let me put it on the right foot, other foot. It's, it's, it's a humbling thing to see how God views even those who, who we would look at as the most brutal and far from God that we can imagine. That he sees them as children. Now, don't get me wrong. God's just. He will judge. We saw the book of Obadiah. God will not be mocked. But a God who's just and righteous is also steadfast in love and gracious and merciful. <clears throat> and all of it leads us to this final question that God almost a cliffhanger that the book of Jonah ends with. Jonah's left asking himself, is he going to be concerned more for his comfort or have compassion like God has compassion on those who are far from him? It's the same question that we're left with. And in that spirit, my two questions for us, for us to consider are, number one, have we allowed what we believe about God to change the way we view ourselves and the way that we view others? You see, as I said earlier, we're a lot like Jonah in that we often, <clears throat> we often know things about God, but we don't allow those things about God to change the way we view ourselves or the way that we view others. <clears throat> Just think about Exodus 34, 6. Imagine knowing that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and relenting from disaster. Imagine knowing all those things and looking at some people and thinking, God's that way to me, but not to them. It's as if what he knew about God hadn't made its way down to his heart. He, didn't, he, he could share God's message with people, but he didn't share God's heart for people. See, for Jonah, he was a Hebrew first, as we looked at earlier. It's not only how he viewed himself, it's, it, it led to the way that he looked at others. You see, it's interesting throughout the Old Testament, God chose Israel. They were a special people that we cannot deny. And even as the gospel came through, through Christ, it was to the Jew first and then also to the Greek in God's plan of redemption. But God made Israel to be a showcase people to put on display his glory for the nations, so that they may know him and come to experience the same blessing that God had blessed Israel with. Jonah had lost sight of that. See, for Jonah, being Hebrew is not just an ethnic identity. It was a theological implication. He was part of God's chosen people. They knew God. But the thing about knowing God is nobody can be proud of the fact that they know God because we didn't figure it out. We didn't introduce ourselves to God. God introduced himself to us. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul would say, Now that you have come to know God, and it's as if he catches himself, and he says, or rather, you've come to be known by God. That's God's mercy and grace to us. Not that we know him, but that he knows us and he's made himself known to us. When we know God's mercy, it changes us. We, we see this in the gospel, the gospel of Luke. We see when, when Jesus uh, forgave uh, a woman uh, in Luke chapter 7. He tells his disciples, if you've been forgiven of little, you will love little. But in return, if you've been forgiven of much, you will love much. And the issue is, how do you see yourself? How do you see your sin? Do you know that you've been forgiven of much, which means that you know yourself a great sinner and God to be a great Savior? If you do, in turn, it changes the way you see yourself, having not earned God's love and mercy, but having received it. And in turn, it changes the way you look at others. The implication of all of this is that you must see yourself rightly as being one who's received God's grace and mercy in order to see others rightly. Uh, there's a little book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal Prophet, which goes through much of the book of Jonah. <clears throat> and Jonah obviously brings us to these issues of race and ethnicity and how we view ourselves and how we view others And Keller says, Christians still have the same jobs, the same families, the same racial and ethnic backgrounds, yet God's love in Christ now becomes the most fundamental source of our self-worth. This displaces, but does not efface or remove our other identity factors like our racial or ethnic identity. That means when you become a Christian, you don't stop uh, to apply it to our context being Chinese, Korean, black, white, Hispanic, or any other Uh, identifying background, but now those things don't define you as they fully did. You do not rely on them for worth and honor in the same way. Being a Christian gives you some distance and objectivity so that you can see both the good and bad parts of your background and culture and identity more clearly than many who are still relying on them for their fundamental self-worth. Paul shows us that there's neither Jew or Greek in Christ, And yet, Paul keeps his Jewish customs and practices as a part of his identity and longs for his people, the people of Israel, to come to know him in Romans 9. He said, I would be cut off from God if my people would come to know you, God. Paul wasn't ashamed or didn't deny or turn away from his background. But those things were put into perspective. I love how one author put it. It says, Christianity is not a flight from one's original culture, but a new way of living within it because of the new vision of peace and joy in Christ. And throughout history, we've always erred, not when we've allowed and celebrated the unique aspects of our culture, but when we've elevated our culture over and above God, when we've allowed our culture to dictate the way we view ourselves and the way we view God. This is at the heart of racism that elevates its view of one people over another. And I think what, what's most telling if we are allowing our view of God, our identity in Christ to shape our other identities, <clears throat> it doesn't do away with them, but it brings them into the right perspective. It's when we have the ability to actually look at our own background, whatever it, whatever it might be in my case as a white American, to look at my background and be honest with its faults, be honest with its sins. I think in many ways in our own culture, this is the, the process and the struggle that, that goes on. It's, it's as if we're scared sometimes to look at the past and tell the truth that hurts. And this isn't just true for one people that need to do this, but it's true for all people. That if we can have some, uh, some self, uh, some critique of our own background... Not because we think ourselves better than others, but because we have a different lens with which we look at ourselves and we look at the world now. The lens of God's mercy that's changed us and changes the way we view ourselves and changes the way we look at one another, especially those who are different than us. Just like Jonah, I think this is a process, not just an experience, not an enlightenment. It's something that happens as we submit ourselves to God. I can assure you that it won't happen on social media, but it will happen in community. As we allow our view of who God is, as we reflect on who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, and as we live out who God says we are in Christ, that we become who God wants us to be. Have you allowed your view of God, his radical mercy and grace, that's changed you to change the way you view yourself? And the way that you view others. And then finally, are you willing to embrace God's mission no matter the cost? See, the book of Jonah falls in, in the line from Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 to Matthew chapter 28. It falls within the trajectory of God's mission to take his name and make his name known among all nations. <clears throat> the trajectory of God bringing his blessing to all nations, and God sending us out to make disciples of all nations. We, like Jonah, are called to go and to take God's message to the world, the message that brings God's mercy to all people, the message that God's judgment didn't fall on us, but that it fell on Jesus. Jesus, like Jonah, was in the grave for three days, three nights, defeating sin and death and rising victoriously from the grave. It was in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, some scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, "'Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you.' But he answered them, he said, "'An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth.'" The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, God rescued Jonah through the fish. God rescues us through the cross of Christ. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah. And it was actually the people who are far from God who had ears to hear and repented that Jesus says will rise up in that day and condemn his own generation. Perhaps we could even say our generation because we have a greater sign than even Jonah. And yet we still harden our hearts in pride and run from God as well as in self-righteousness thinking that we know better than God. See, I believe since God brought Jonah back from a near certain death, the people of Nineveh listened to his message perhaps a little more closely than they would have otherwise. We bear a message that God put Jesus to death for our sins and raised him from actual death. How can we not take that message to the world when Jesus has sent us to make him known? See, when we read the, the story of Jonah, we see it perhaps in light of the story of the, the two sons in the Gospels, but also I can't help but think of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan's the antithesis to Jonah, right? Jonah doesn't share God's heart of compassion for those who are far from God. But the Good Samaritan helps his neighbor, even though he would be have been considered his enemies. <clears throat> the Levite and the priest from Israel... Walk around the helpless man, perhaps too busy, or un- unwilling to be bothered. The good Samaritan didn't see his enemy as an inconvenience, but a person in need. The good Samaritan didn't call um, <clears throat> didn't call on his enemy to take care of his own needs, but cared for his enemy at great cost to himself. All those who follow Jesus. Love their neighbor, regardless of their ethnicity, background, values, or religion. And they do whatever it costs to bring to them the message, that sign of Jonah, that greater sign of Jonah that is Jesus' death and resurrection. After telling the story uh, of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asked the crowd, who was the better neighbor, the true neighbor, the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite? And they said it was the one who showed compassion, the one who had mercy on the helpless man. Jesus said, go and do likewise. One day you're going to tell the story about my notes in this sermon. It's going to be awesome. Go and do likewise. See, on the one hand, we're like Jonah today that we demand justice often, but leave no room for mercy. On the other hand, we're unlike Jonah because we have no problem telling other people that God's loving and merciful, but we shake a little bit at the thought of telling them that God's going to judge. You see, I think to share in God's mission, we have to share in his concern for all people. That means two things at TCC. We say it this way. It means that we declare the gospel that speaks of both God's judgment, as well as his grace and mercy, as well as display his character and the way that we love our neighbor, and we seek their good. See, God confronted Jonah for being willing to preach to the people of Nineveh, but not actually loving the people of Nineveh. Do you see yourself in Jonah? I don't know what fears or prejudices perhaps occupy your heart. I don't see how we can hold on to them in light of who God is. God's grace is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Have you allowed comforts and security to distract you from participating in God's mission? How much we're willing to hold on to, like the priest and the Levite, unwilling to be bothered with the interruptions that God puts in front of us. We can't preach to our city if we don't love our city. If we don't share God's heart for our city. That requires us both to declare and display the gospel. See, I think Jonah ends with asking us this question. Should God be more like us or should we be more like God? I think God's inviting us to share his heart for those who are far from him. He's inviting us to see ourselves in light of his mercy and inviting us to see others the way that he sees them. It may take us to some uncomfortable and unknown places. It may require us to reexamine our view of ourselves and others, it may be costly. In fact, I venture to say it will be costly. But I also venture to say, is it worth it? That it is worth it. And the question is, how will we respond? we share God's heart for those who are far from him. Let's pray.